Please open your Bibles to Mark. Uh, We're going to be at the end of chapter 8. It's where we will be starting today. Uh, Today we are concluding our series on Epiphany, which is the season of Epiphany where we remember and reflect how Jesus made himself manifest as God on earth. Uh, God in human form. We've been talking about these aspects of Jesus. Jesus as liberator, as exorcist, as healer and proclaimer, as the maker of disciples. All of these acts that Jesus performed and words that he spoke to make himself manifest as God on earth. And in Mark 8, starting in verse 29, Jesus asks his disciples a question that he asks every one of us. A question that each one of us is going to ask, going to have to answer one day. And the disciples, Jesus is asking the disciples this. They had borne witness to everything Jesus had been doing, to everything Jesus had taught to this point. And Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers that famous confession of faith. You are the Christ. This is a powerful moment in the book of Mark. And a little bit of background on the book of Mark. It's 16 chapters, and I really like uh, uh, how Mark uh, phrases it. It works as a narrative. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the parables. Uh, He's like he has no time to waste. It was the very first gospel written, and Mark was writing to an audience of believers who had witnessed for themselves the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Mark is writing like this happened, and then this happened, then we went here, then we went here, and the first eight chapters, Chapters, the first eight chapters serve as Mark's case for the identification of Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus has this group of, group of guys with him, the disciples. They, had, they were witnessing everything Jesus had been saying and doing. And we have this moment at the end of chapter 8 where Jesus asks, Now that you've seen me, you've heard me teach, who do you say that I am? And this is also the point where the Gospel of Mark changes. The story goes from Jesus revealing who he is in the first eight chapters towards Jesus turning toward Jerusalem, where he would turn himself into people who hated him, and they would kill him. And chapters 9 through 16 deal with that turn Jesus made towards the cross. We read in Mark 8, 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is the point where the story changes. The disciples hear that word, killed. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, they had been there when the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they had all taken their shot at Jesus. Uh, They all tried to expose him as a fraud or to correct his teaching. Over and over again, these guys would be after Jesus. And Jesus would rebuke them and correct them publicly. And the disciples, having witnessed everything that Jesus had done to that point, they have this moment where they say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus tells them now, the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to turn himself in and they're going to kill me and after three days i will rise again and peter can't take it peter rebukes jesus he says and that's a term we don't use in our culture very often but peter's looking at jesus and he says i will not let you do what you say you're going to do and now what's funny is moments before peter just realized that jesus was god but in this moment peter decides that he's going to tell god what to do that he can't do something And it's a little bit comical. It's awkward. It's like my four-year-old son, Ethan, looking up at me and saying, Dad, I'm going to stop you from doing that. Really? You can't. 
And if you know my son, Ethan, it wouldn't stop him. <laughs> he would still tell me what to do. But in this moment, Jesus rebukes Peter. And uh, when Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the response Jesus has is says, blessed are you, Peter, because that wasn't revealed to you by your own understanding. God revealed that to you. But then, but then moments later, Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to keep you from doing what you say you're going to do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter goes from one mountaintop moment to the next moment he's in the deepest of valleys. Jesus is telling Peter that he's acting more like Satan than a follower of Jesus. Because in that moment, Peter was committed to the glory of Christ, but he wasn't committed to the cross. Even though Jesus had been telling him all along, whether Peter understood it or not, Jesus was uncompromised. I came here to die. To give myself as a sacrifice. Not to rule over people, but to surrender and to serve. Jesus had been talking about this over and over, and Peter had heard it. And Peter was committed to the glory of the Christ, but he wasn't committed to the cross. And I want to call time out in the story, because it's easy for us to do too. And as followers of Jesus, we have to be really careful that we do not permit ourselves the audacity to be able to say to God, I want you to bring me glory, but don't bring me a cross. That's not optional. Are we aware of that? That Jesus never said, come and be comfortable. No, he said, come and die. Come and give up this world so that you can gain something greater. But we cannot be committed to the glory of Christ if we're not committed to the cross of Christ. And this is a moment in which Peter is developed. Now, Mark is writing his gospel based on many of the things that Peter were tell was telling him that were going on. In fact, even in today's message, you'll understand that there's an insight that Peter is giving Mark that explains one of Peter's first reactions. So Peter's being reshaped by the reality of Christ, and now that Jesus has rebuked him. But I love the fact that Jesus isn't cruel. I mean, okay, he does call Peter Satan, but uh, he's saying, Peter, you're acting like Satan. And let's think about it this way. If we go back to the temptations that Jesus had in the wilderness, I think that all of the temptations can be uh, summed up in one way, that Satan was telling Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to, uh, to do these things. You are already all-powerful. You don't have to go through the cross. If you would just choose to stay in your glory, you'll still be God, and everything is yours. But Jesus understood that if he didn't suffer, then we would suffer. And he chose his suffering over ours. And to a lesser extent, the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness still applies to us today. Are we willing to suffer for the kingdom of God? Or do we want the kingdom of God to just be about us? Because in that moment, Peter's understanding of the kingdom is being corrected. But Jesus isn't cruel. Let's look at uh, chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him, let me turn it on here. Jesus took with him Peter, and let's just pause there for a moment. Let's let this sink in for a second. Uh, one day, he's Satan, and the next day, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, come on, let's go take a trip together. Jesus isn't cruel. He's inviting and welcoming, but he will correct us. He will tell us no. He will tell us when we're not acting like one of his. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them... Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And what I want to do this morning is walk through this scene. And if you hang with me at the end of the sermon, I want to give two brief points to, about what we are to do with this text. This is an instrumental text. It is more important than I had ever deemed it important before as I've understood it and studied it and to what this actually is standing for. And let's begin with the transformation of Jesus. Now, Luke and Matthew also make reference to this event, this moment on the mountaintop. Uh, Luke is in chapter 9, Matthew in chapter 17, and they all tell the same story. Uh, So if I'm making reference to either Luke or Matthew, just keep that in mind. That is in chapter 9 of Luke and 17 of Matthew. And I believe it's Luke that records that uh, Jesus took these three disciples to the mountain and the three fell asleep. And it makes me ask, why three? Why didn't he take all 12? Well, don't assume that because he just took the three that the other nine weren't important. You can't make that assumption correctly. Uh, but if you go to Mark, uh, you can't, but these three, they were on the mountaintop to pray with Jesus and they fell asleep. Now, if you go to Mark chapter 14, you'll see that these three also were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did they do that night as well? They fell asleep, all right? And growing up, I always thought, what a bunch of lazy slugs. I mean, Jesus is doing all the work, and they're just camping out, taking a nap. But an insight that Luke gives us, he records that when they went to the mountain that night, that they were grieved to the point of sorrow. And that makes sense. In other words, let's just nod your head if you can relate to this. Uh, Have you ever had a moment where your life was so hard, you're so overwhelmed, and you're so tired that no matter what time of day it is, all you can do is sleep? Moms, all right, anybody? Look at your husbands. Yes, okay, (laughs) all right. But that's actually not what I'm talking about because that's not sorrow. Have you ever had one of those days when it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and All you want to do is sleep until it's tomorrow morning, hoping that you'll wake up from your nightmare. If you've ever had that experience, then you can understand what drove these men to collapse. Remember that Jesus had started telling them that he's going to die, and the disciples knew who was going to kill him. And it was overwhelming. This wasn't a sterile, clean moment. They were so overwhelmed with sorrow that they fell asleep. And during that time, he took three of them up there. And why would he take three? In the Old Testament, it was said that if you wanted to witness any event and and be able to stand as legal witness to something occurring before authorities, there had to be how many witnesses? Two or three. All right. And so Jesus took up with them witnesses so that they could witness to uh, this event that was happening on the mountaintop and they could witness to the disciples what had occurred. But I'm telling you, not only did the world testify as to what would happen But God himself would testify through Moses and Elijah and through his own voice. There was testimony from earth and there was testimony from heaven as to what took place on that mountain. And the disciples start this moment having fallen asleep. And then Mark says that he was transfigured. That's all that Mark says. This is why every now and then I want to smack Mark. Because uh, the word transfigured, it comes, it's a combination of two Greek words which means changed form. They fell asleep And Jesus looked like Jesus. But when they woke up, he didn't. He looked like sunshine. He was lit up. In the Old Testament, the image of wherever God came to earth, it was was always light. It was bright light. And while the analogies that the different gospel authors use, they differ slightly, but they all agree that this was like a light that they had never seen. 
In Matthew 17, he said that Jesus' face was bright like the sun. Now, if you've ever seen the 1950s movie of the, of the Ten Commandments, now, I want to share some pictures here. Oh, other one. All right, so we have the one on the uh, left here. That when Charlton Heston went up the mountain as Moses, he looks like he's about 40 and normal. And when he comes down, he looks like he's about 95. And, you know, he spent some time in the tanning booth. And, you know, he has this mane of flowing white hair, okay? What they're trying to depict with this is that when anyone came into the presence of God, that the radiance of God would reflect off of them. It was like the best sun lamp that you'd ever be under. You'd get burned. And when Moses came off the mountain, we read in Exodus that he had to shield his face from the people because they were all so awestruck at how the presence of God had altered him. And this time that Jesus appears, he is blown up with light. Let's see here. We, this is breaking now. All right, if we could get that. Enough Charlton Heston. Is there such a thing? Anyway, sorry. Uh, and this time that Jesus appears, he is, and Jesus appears, and he is blown up with light. And it is so impressed the disciples that I want to read for you two passages from the letters that were written by John and Peter years later. This was as many as 40 years later when they talk about this moment. In 2 Peter 1.16, let's see if we could get working here. Are we not working? Of course not. All right, thanks. All right, Second Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What do you think Peter's talking about? He's talking about that day that he woke up from a nap and he went, oh my God. And there he was. And then John wrote in the introduction of his gospel, when he wrote, he wrote this probably about 40 years after Mark penned his gospel. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. John saying, I saw it. I saw a sneak peek of who he was outside of the flesh, and I can never forget it. In Revelation, John would see Jesus in his glorified state in heaven. And listen to how he describes him. He says that his face, he, he shone like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. He remembered that night on that mountaintop, and he says, I've seen this before. This is beautiful. It's light. And I like how Luke records it. Luke says that when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Now, do you ever have someone turn on the light in your room at 4 a.m.? I have three boys who want nothing to do with bed when it's time to go to sleep. But then, you know, you try to wake them up in the morning, they turn into vampires. All right, so... Now, but you're dead asleep, it's four in the morning, and someone turns on the light. Now, are you welcome to that light? No. Or do you not curse the light and love the darkness? And here they were, and all of a sudden, they were awakened by this radiant light coming from Jesus. And if you wonder what it's all about, I can't describe it very well, but if you remember, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, do you remember how they couldn't recognize him except for the holes in his hands? Something about Jesus had changed. Something had transformed. And God revealed the glory of Jesus. Jesus took a different form. And then in verse 4, Elijah and Moses were there with them when, he, when they woke up. And I always wondered, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? I mean, did he have a little hi, my name is Moses tag? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit saying, this is exactly who you think it is. Uh, but Luke 9.31, Luke says that they spoke about his departure and which he was, what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And remember, Peter had said, Jesus, I'm not going to let you do this. And he awakens that afternoon, and there's Jesus with Elijah and Moses. And what are they talking about? Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus about the fact that, about what his death is about to accomplish. 
His death will accomplish all the prophecies and all the law. Do you think that was important for three Jewish disciples as they listened to this conversation? They had to be thinking, my goodness, I was trying to stop what God had intended from the very beginning. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Moses is the rescuer of Israel. He was the one who led them up out of, out, out of slavery into freedom. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And why Elijah? Elijah was the prophet who stood up and he called out the false teachers and the false religious leaders and the false kings and queens. And he challenged them. He said that there's only one God and that God needs to be worshipped in all righteousness. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And they appeared there, the law and the prophets. And I didn't realize this until I learned it in college from one of my teachers, that if you look at the great age of miracles in the Old Testament, they happened in the days of Moses and in the days of Elijah. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? The great miracles that revealed God's plan to save the world. Jesus was the culmination of all the law and all the prophets. And here's what I want you to know. God's plans are seldom ours. We want to stop Jesus from suffering, and Jesus says, no, I came to suffer. And by my suffering, you're going to be set free like Moses set the Israelites free. And like Elijah, he protected the autonomy of God and the beauty of God. I'm going to do that too with my suffering. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And the moral lesson for each of us is that sometimes God's going to ask us to go to our death, and we're going to fight against it like Peter did until we are awakened to the glory of Christ and we understand why he's asking us to do it. And then Peter, well, he acts like Peter. It's, it's better to think of it as cute rather than make fun of him. But I like verse 5, and Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Really? All right. Jesus just explodes into light on a mountaintop, and you're like, yeah, it's a good day. I'm glad I came. One moment, he's like, I'm not going to let you go to Jerusalem. And the next moment, like, whoa, you're, you're him. You're here. And every day, we have to be reminded of the glory of Christ. And Peter says something. I used to make fun of this, but I can't anymore. He says, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When I was reading through this in college, I remember thinking that Peter was trying to turn this place into a theme park. You know, we're going to have, you know, uh, rides, we're going to sell funnel cakes, we're going to do everything that uh, people do, and we're going to make this an attraction. Because you see, in those days, where God appeared on earth, that, you made that a holy place. You built up a temple, you built an altar, you called it Bethel, the place of God. Over and over again, we have examples of this throughout the Old Testament. And so Peter is geeked up and he says, let's do this. But, Peter says, but Jesus says, no, no, hold on. And let me explain to you in a few moments why Peter may be more brilliant than I've ever given him credit for. But Peter sees Elijah and he sees, uh, and remember that the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament, he says that the prophet Elijah will come before the Messiah. Peter looks at this, and you can't blame him for it. Peter sees this, and he's like, let's start the kingdom now. We don't have to suffer. Elijah's here. Moses is here. And why don't we just begin this thing now? We'll put all this hard stuff aside. And we would all want that for Jesus. And he says, so let's build shelters, and I'll explain what those mean in just a moment. But he has to remember that Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus about his death. And when Peter's at that moment, he's like, well, let's just get rid of all the hard parts and, uh, of following him, and let's just put the plan into motion. In verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The most the important three words of the entire verse are, listen to him. Peter, there's no shortcut. Without suffering, there's no hope. 
listen to him. Listen to what Moses is saying. Listen to what Elijah is saying about him. Listen to what I'm telling you he needs to do. The cloud, the cloud would epitomize everything about God in the Old Testament. The cloud appeared on the mountain when the Ten Commandments were given. The cloud appeared in front of the tabernacle when God was seated on the throne. Everywhere that God went was epitomized by a cloud. And when the cloud came down, Peter's going, oh my goodness, and the cloud speaks, this is my son. And then the cloud disappears and only Jesus remains. And after this moment, Matthew records in Matthew 17, 6, I love this. After God spoke through the cloud, we read, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. I love the fact that the, the three disciples, they were no better than any of us. They were human beings who struggled and they were scared. But who deserved to be most fearful on that mountaintop? It wasn't Peter, James, and John. It was Jesus. And Jesus knew what was going to await him as he went down that hill and turned towards Jerusalem. Because when he came down off that mountain, he went straight for Jerusalem. Who had the right to be scared on that mountaintop? Jesus did. But who was most frightened? The disciples were. The cloud came down. The voice of God spoke. Do you remember what that meant in the Old Testament? Get ready to die. Because God's presence cannot be in the presence of sin. For three sinners to be on that mountaintop when the presence of God came down, that we're toast, we're dead. And Jesus, our Jesus, who's not cruel, he walks over and he touches them and he says, get up. Nobody gets up in the presence of God. You stayed on your face until he left. Jesus says, get up and don't be afraid. Mark records, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, this is a pretty powerful moment. Remember what Peter said? Hey, let's put up three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And they look up, and Jesus is there by himself, saying, don't be afraid. They don't need three shelters. They would only need one. And I'm going to show you, I don't even think they needed that one, and here's why. Because I want to conclude this morning by giving you two main points. These aren't new. They are as old as your faith. But we need to understand that this is the pivot. This is the moment that the story turns from us understanding who Jesus is to us following Jesus to his cross. It's crucial for us to hold on to this. The first point that I want to make is a theological point. This is the foundation on which we go forward. The second point is what do we do with it? So let's begin. The first point is this. Jesus is the complete revelation of God's glory. Now, that shouldn't surprise you. You would assume that he is. Uh, But here's what I'm trying to tell you, that Jesus is... He isn't a junior God down here on earth on internship. He's not part of God in a man who's better than most men, that he had some sort of advantage that most of us don't have. That's not what he is. The Bible says that on on the mountain, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 33, and Moses says to God, show me your glory, which is funny to me because God had already warned Israel that if anyone was to even touch the mountain when God's presence was on it, they would die. But Moses is only up there by God's permission. And Moses has the audacity to say to God, show me your glory. And I think that God smiles at him and he says, no, it'd kill you. It's like me. My boys love it when we wrestle around. They are pure boys. And we wrestle around and throw them on the couch. That's like if Andrew comes to me and says, dad, just give me your best. No, you don't want all this coming at you. I I realize I'm bragging about beating up a nine-year-old. But God says to Moses, 
you can't handle this. I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to show you my back. And I'm told that this is a Hebrew idiom, that I'm going to give you the slightest glimpse of an image of me, not me, but just to show you my glory, just a taste of it. And he passed by, and Moses came down the mountain, and his whole countenance was changed. He was tan, he had the flowing white hair, and, but he was reflecting. Now pay attention. He reflected the glory of God. When Jesus was revealed on the mountain of transfiguration, he didn't reflect God. He was God. There's a big difference between junior God here on internship and the God of all creation exploding on a mountaintop. Where the law and the prophets said to him that the glory, that glory will be sacrificed for those people and that will fulfill everything God had ever planned. So that's the theology of this. That's why in Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Please understand that. Jesus did not come to give you a glimpse of God. God came to give you a glimpse of himself. The second and final point I want to make this morning, and this is the practical side of it. Jesus is the gift of glory. If what I just told you is true, and the mountain of transfiguration documents that it is, with witnesses from both heaven and earth, then you need to understand the gift that he's presenting to us. When Peter says, Rabbi, let's put up three shelters, I I used to laugh at that, thinking, oh, there's Peter, he missed it again. But he may not have missed it, because this moment took place during a week that's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. If you remember, back in November, we talked about this. In the Old Testament, we read that this feast was designed to remind the Israelites how God took them up from Egypt and he took them through the wilderness and delivered them to the promised land. And so during this feast, the Jews were told that they would leave their homes and go live in tents outside the city for seven days to be reminded of when God moved them from slavery to life. And it was during that week that the radiance of Jesus Christ exploded and revealed to these disciples who they knew who he was they didn't understand who he was. And in that moment, Peter says, let's put up tents. Let's celebrate the Feast of Booths right here. But you have to remember that during the Feast of Booths, not only would they live in their own tent, but they would have to go to a special tent where a sacrifice would have to be made for them. And the blood of the sacrifice would be poured out over them. And the priest would serve them and they could go into the tabernacle and worship God. Now, are we seeing the symmetry here? When, what Peter's saying is, we're three sinners and we have come before the presence of the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, and the God of all, Jesus. And Peter says, let's build a tent where we can go in and be cleansed so that we can worship. Because when Jesus says, get up, don't be afraid. Everyone who had come into the presence of God in this fashion before feared for their lives. But because of Jesus, listen to me, Peter says, Let's put up a tent for these three. We're going to need a tent for the law, a tent for the prophets. And after the cloud disappears, they look up and it's only Jesus. What we need to understand with our Western thought, with our American minds, that where Jesus was, you didn't need a tent anymore. Peter, you won't need a sacrifice anymore. You won't need a priest. Peter, you need me. Get up. Don't be afraid. What would have killed us in our sin before will now allow us to radiate the glory of God through Jesus. Remember when Moses got a tan and got his hair bleached? Moses was just reflecting the glory of God. Jesus was the glory of God. 
We don't need a tent. We don't need a sacrifice. We don't need a priest. We don't need to fall on our face anymore. We can stand by the blood of Christ, by what Jesus is about to do going down that mountain. We just need to follow him to the cross, and we cannot hesitate to go to the cross that he calls us to. And by that blood, that sacrifice, you and I can live. Church, this is our hope. It is our only hope. It's not enough to know these things. You can know who Jesus is and still be lost. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did. They knew who he was, but they made up stories about him to try to take away his glory so that they could feel better about the lives that they chose to live because they didn't want to change their hearts. But when we see his glory and fall down on our faces, Jesus reaches down with kindness and he says, get up, don't be afraid. Let's go to the cross. And by the blood of the sacrifice that the prophets and the law have spoken of, By all of that, you will be cleansed. No more tents, no more priests, no more sacrifices. Only Jesus, only hope, only life. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it, church? We make the call at the end of a teaching based on what the word of God teaches us this day. And today, it is clear. There are many of us who believe that Jesus is the glory of God, but we aren't reflecting his glory. And I don't mean it's because you don't try hard enough or you're not good enough or you have bad habits. Let's get ourselves out of the picture. We don't reflect the glory of Christ because we've never been cleansed by the final sacrifice, the final final tabernacle, the final priest. Without the blood of Christ, we are lost. We will pay for our sins. We will be punished for our sins. And Jesus Christ came as God to earth so that he could open the door for us that could only be opened by his blood so that we could walk through clean and cleansed for the worship of our almighty God. For many of us today, we once walked through that door and were covered by the blood of Christ. We were baptized for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could walk in newness of life. But today, we're not reflecting the glory of Christ because we can even turn that journey into something about ourselves, can't we? Remember, God's ways are not our ways, but his ways lead us home. If you're not covered by the blood of Christ, you could be the best person, the nicest person, the most understanding person, the most gracious person, but your sins will still condemn you. And I don't want that for you. I want you to radiate the glory of Jesus Christ. And that can only be discovered when we surrender to who he is and we accept what he's done. And if you want to know more about that, this is not something that you can just say, yeah, well, I said the words one day, I got dunked in some water, so now I'm good. This is something to surrender to each and every day. We know who Jesus Christ is, and we know that through his suffering, we no longer have to. This is the gift of a lifetime. It is the gift of God's glory. So I ask you today, do you want to keep looking for that sacrifice in that tent where you can try to make yourself as good as possible so that hopefully you might be good enough that God will love you? Or are you looking for that place where the love of God radiates off of you? Jesus told us that we are the light of the world. We are the city on a hill. We're a lamp that should not be covered up. The light of Christ is to reflect off of us so that the world understands who he is for his glory. But that only happens when we have been washed by the blood of our king and we walk with him to his cross. If you want to know more about this or if you have a need for prayer or any other decision you need to make this morning, we invite you to come down and talk with us as we stand and glorify our king in worship. Please stand.